get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. This is the Church Politics Podcast with uh, Michael Ware and Justin Gibney. Uh, Justin, good to be uh, talking with you after uh, being with you this weekend for the Frontline Discipleship Tour. How are you, brother? I'm doing well, brother. I really enjoyed uh, our tour stop in D.C. Uh, we were again at District. Uh, we were at the First Baptist Church of District Heights with uh, Pastor Dr. Bobby Manning, who so kindly hosted the event. And it was it was awesome. Let me tell you something, brother. I, I it does my heart good uh, just to be around those, you know, those minds and the folks who participated. It was you, uh, Show Baraka. We had Amos Jones, who did a wonderful job. And then again, Dr. Bobby, Bobby Manning. And I am just continually encouraged uh, by meeting some of these rising faith leaders in not only their fidelity to scripture, which is so important, but their communication skills, uh, their boldness and the ability to apply all of that uh, to the issues of the day in a way that I think is really relevant and is 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 showing that the spirit is just moving among us. And I'm, I'm excited yeah, about what's coming. You know, I- I was touched, you know, there's just a a beautiful audience there, wonderfully engaged, just earnest questions, uh, both, you know, I think uh, uh, questions with depth on a policy level, but even more important, a lot of people just asking about um, how to keep their faith strong in times like this. And uh, and that was really touching to me as well. So uh, thanks to all who turned out to to be with us uh in prince george's county outside of dc uh so yeah man that was great now you're in dallas uh this week right so on thursday we'll be at we'll be in dallas um and we'll, we're looking forward to another uh really good event we got grant skeldon uh who's speaking with us dr cj rhodes uh cecily smith and some other folks down in Dallas that'll be speaking. It's, it's going to be another good event. If you are in Dallas on Thursday, we will be in Dallas uh, with another Frontline Discipleship Tour stop. It will likely be the last stop, at least on this Great. part of the tour. I'll, uh, so come, I'll come be check in us Dallas out. this Thursday for the uh, Cooperative Baptist uh, Convention and looking forward to that. Uh, all right, folks, let's get to the news. A lot to cover uh, in global news in uh, sort of religion and policy news. So we have a lot to bring you this week. First, let's uh, jump off with the global, uh, the G7 summit was held last week. Uh, and it, uh, you know, it was, it was interesting, like the G20, uh, just to <laughs> see President Trump on the global stage, uh, interacting with uh, our European allies in particular in, in some surprising ways. This, of course, the G7 took place uh, uh, just, you know, days after the June 1st uh, uh, imposition of uh, tariff on steel and aluminum. Uh, and that was that that tariff was imposed on the EU, Canada and Mexico. Uh, and so that was a big topic of discussion. Uh 
Justin, I'm not sure what you what you want to cover. I I, I think what what was the striking message to me was so at the end of these uh, summits, there's usually a sort of communique, a sort of joint statement of of uh, shared principles that came out of the G7, uh, and uh, uh, under you know President Trump's leadership, the the America was not part of the communique, <laughs> uh, uh, which is is noteworthy. It's not completely without precedent, uh, but but seems to only amplify tensions with uh, what were viewed as our most solid allies in Europe and in Canada. And instead, um, instead, uh, Trump was defending Russia's right to go back into the G7 to make it a G8, uh, uh, while kind of sticking, uh, uh, putting a stick in the eye of uh, France and Germany and Canada. And so, uh, just what were your takeaways from from the G7? Yeah. It was an interesting. There was a lot going on. Uh, so, so as many of you know, I'll give a little bit, a little bit of background as we go into it. This was the forty fourth uh, G seven summit, which is the group of seven. I was in Quebec, Canada. It's a two day meeting, as uh, Michael was pointing out, between the U S., Canada, France, Italy, Germany, Japan, and the United Kingdom. Uh, those seven countries represent about sixty percent of the global net worth. So, this is important. Uh, the stakes are high here, and these are some, some important issues they talk about. Now, the summit was initially created in the 1970s to discuss economic policy, uh, and, and, and it's become a little more broad uh, on the agenda this time were things like investing in growth that, that was inclusive, uh, gender equality, uh, climate change, and also the, the readmission of Russia, which is something that Michael pointed out, because Russia had been suspended from the summit, which could would used to be the G8 summit after its annexation of Crimea from the Ukraine. And so that was a penalty for making that move. Now, I think everyone would think that's an understandable penalty and you don't want people just getting away with anything. You want to let them know you take it seriously. So that's why they were suspended. However, our president uh, called for them to be readmitted. Um, and so that kind of shook up the, uh, the summit along with some other things. Merkel came out of the summit saying, look, this was somewhat sober and depressing. Uh, and also she wanted Trump and others to know that the uh, European Union wouldn't be taken advantage of in trade. Uh, so there were some very tough conversations about the steel and aluminum tariffs and also the Iran deal. Those are all things that we've talked about on the church politics podcast before. Uh, and, and, and to your point, Michael, uh, at the end, the countries actually did agree on a joint uh, document. And this document was basically calling for free fair and mutually beneficial trade, but also uh, fighting protectionism. So initially, uh, the U.S. was uh, um, uh, a part of this and it was OK with it. Uh, but because of apparently because of some comments made by C Canadian leader Justin Trudeau, Trump came out later and disavowed the communique with a tweet. Um, and so, you know, uh, 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 they could have ended off on a very good note. <laughs> then shortly after, you know, he sends this treat tweet out. Now, Trudeau, the comment that people are saying sparked this was when Trudeau, uh, after the meeting, came back and said that Canadians are polite uh, and reasonable, but won't be pushed around, uh, which was somewhat of a shot. I don't know. Uh, certainly not enough of one for the reaction that we got from Trump. 
especially one of his advisors. So one of his top economic advisors, Navarro, said this. He said, there's a special place in hell for any leader uh, that engages in bad faith diplomacy with President Trump in particular and then stabs him in the back. I don't even know where to say, where to start on this one. Um, and so it, it was just unfortunate. You know, these are our allies. These are people we should be working constructively with because there are so many people around the world that are hurting. We should be able to talk about economic policy, uh, stability, equality, and all these things with these people in a way that is productive. And that just didn't seem to happen. But I, I'll end with this, Michael. I, I really... You know, Absolutely. the more and more I watch, Absolutely. Uh, one of my favorite leaders as far as style and presence is uh, Angela Merkel, uh, who is the leader yeah. out of Germany. Uh, she is very serious. Uh, she's thoughtful and she's always about business. Right. I don't necessarily agree with every decision yeah. she makes. But when she comes to the table, people know that she's about business. She's not always selling wolf tickets and trying to be provocative, right? She doesn't necessarily have to prove that she's going to be tough on Trump and make all these statements that show, hey, I'm tough on Trump. People know when she steps into the room that she's she's about that type of business. So I really think that Trump especially could learn from that type of leadership where it's it's focused on business, it's focused about being productive. She knows what's at stake and it's very clear that she's going to uh, go hard to do what's, what she thinks is best. But I'm going to also say that Trudeau could, could benefit from that too, because I think he plays to this Trump thing a little bit too much. And I don't take, always take him as seriously. I think he's somewhat provocative. And so he, he needs to make these statements right. to show he stood up to Trump. Where again, Merkel, you already know what it is. You know, back in the day when I played football, we used to say, don't, don't, don't talk about it, be about it. <laughs> and I think that Merkel in a real way is about the business. That both of these two other leaders, and I'm not saying they're equivalent. Yeah, so you no, can throw that I, out, I completely agree. Both of these other two right. leaders could learn I, from her style of leadership I, I guess, because I think it's an, uh, uh, one th- effective one and it's, it's what the world needs this, uh, at this moment. Which has just been building over time is, you know, for, for Americans to watch their their president go to the G7, um, take take steps to to isolate ourselves, to not be able to. Uh, have a, a friendly relationship with Canada uh, to, 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 to not be able to, to stand and defend democratic values alongside the leaders of France and the UK and Germany. And instead, as we've seen multiple times that we've discussed on the show, France, UK and Germany actually putting out uh, statements uh, to to offer a direct counterexample to the leadership of our president. Um, obviously, there are all kinds of policy implications of that. But the thing I've been thinking about is um, the 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 unmooring that does uh, to the American identity, uh, and, and the fact that this is a time when we need leaders who are willing to. Uh, uh, tell a a good, true, and beautiful story about who Americans are, an identity that uh, a, a, a national identity that that everyone can embrace and be a part of, and and know what it is. And we don't have a president right now that's willing uh, or able to to give that to us. Instead, we have a president that is. Uh, doing things in such a way that it makes the world, and I think uh, uh, American citizens uh, 
question who we are anymore. It, like if, if we can't get out of the G7 by joining our closest allies uh, in an agreement, uh, th then that 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 that's going to cause some instability with national identity, which is you know somewhat ironic for for someone who. who uh, politically promotes such a nationalistic message. And so I just think it's going to be a, a major problem. I think the 2020 campaign is largely going to be about this debate about American identity and what it means to be an American and and we want America to stand for. Uh, and, and I think that's going to be a dire and important debate. Well, uh, well we are going to talk about uh, the masterpiece Supreme Court case that came down last week. It's a uh, significant right. case, significant ruling, uh, though we'll go into exactly what it means moving forward. And we'll do that right after the break. This is the Church Politics Podcast. I love my family. I'm best friends with my dad. And then this 2016 election cycle came up and it really drove a wedge in between some of us. Donald Trump's the first person that got us. He's the first person to actually at least pretend to give a damn about us. Check out Depolarize, the podcast that fights against tribalism and incivility by searching for common ground at the intersection of politics, psychology, and faith. This season, we look closely at the phenomenon of white evangelical support for Donald Trump and the many difficult, related questions that are begging to be answered. Two grown men picked him up, a 15-year-old kid, and threw him as hard as they could off the hood of the car. Uh, and it's shocking. It's shocking. His whole, all his teeth came out. Uh, he's bleeding all over the place. And they look, they look to us, right? They say, you fucking this is what happens to you. God isn't far away. God is with us now, here, now. Every moment matters. I don't know why I'm crying. It just, it just hurts. Find Depolarize on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The free exercise clause of the United States Constitution gives Americans of all faiths the right to maintain and to live out uh, un, un, even unpopular or even offensive religious beliefs, despite where the majority of society may stand on certain issues. Uh, this is where we derive our religious liberty protections. And last week, the uh, Supreme Court of the United States ruled on a case where we see religious liberty and sexual orientation to be somewhat in conflict. Um, this was the Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado uh, Civil Rights Commission case. Here, a Colorado baker uh, declined to create a custom wedding cake for a same-sex couple. Uh, after uh, he let them know this, the couple filed a complaint with the uh, Colorado Civil Rights Commission for sexual orientation discrimination. The commission, after reviewing the case, agreed with the same-sex couple that he had, uh, that this baker had uh, committed discrimination based on sexual orientation. And so they prevented the baker from baking cakes for anyone else until he did so uh, for same-sex couples. Uh, based on this decision, the baker appealed. He appealed all the way to the Supreme Court, who ruled seven to two, in his favor. Uh, the court found that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission had summarily dismissed this baker's religious beliefs and had been hostile and really uh, inconsistent in their treatment of his religion and in his case in general. 
Now, to be clear, um, the baker does serve LGBT customers. And he said he would have served this particular couple under other circumstances. But that a wedding is such a religious ceremony uh, that he could not participate Mm. uh, in good conscience. So I also want to make sure that we understand that this was a very narrow ruling, uh, that it didn't even create a bright line rule or a precedent for similar cases. Uh, and so it certainly does not mean that Christians who run businesses can deny LGBT, LGBT, uh, people or couples generally. Uh, so if you run a sub shop and some people come in and you deny them, uh, this does not protect you in, in that regard, nor should it. And I, and I'd like to say this, you know, any Christian who would do something like that and mistreat these people just based on their sexual attraction or who they're coupled with, you want to question whether you're acting in a, in a Christ-like way. I don't think that's how he would act. And in no way do I, and I, I, you know, I, I think Michael can speak for himself, but I think he'd agree. Do we, do, do we support not serving and embracing people who may disagree with us on that issue or maybe living out? Uh, a way that we don't necessarily agree with. Be clear that this decision does not protect you from doing that. And I question whether you would be acting Christian like if you took that stance anyway. Um, so I, I do believe that this is a victory for religious liberty. You know, the court recognized the legitimacy of uh, his religious beliefs in the in the face of, you know, sexual orientation. And so I do see that as a victory but it's a victory for religious liberty and not just a victory for Christians. And so I hope that any Christian that supports this ruling would feel the same way if it was a Muslim brother or sister, if they were Jewish or any other religion, um, or if the couple were different. Yeah, that's uh, and so really it, good. it's not you, you, about you the know, people. Uh, it's about uh, religious beliefs. The, the, it's about the, the ceremony. Liberal it's about democratic religious conscience coming out of uh, this, that is so protected uh, under our constitution. Sort of what, what were your general scholars, thoughts about Kate this Shaw's, case? Uh, one of them, Kate Shaw is a, a, a wonderful person. Uh, uh, she, she wrote uh, editorial in the New York Times that I think really set the tone for a lot of the uh, response we're seeing from the left to this, which was basically saying that the, the, the court's ruling uh, showed that as long as there isn't clear uh, uh, religious animus evidenced, uh, as long as these laws and the enforcement of them are uh, uh, generally applicable, uh, generally distributed, uh, and not motivated by re- religious animus, then it's fine. You know, we we could do whatever we want legally, and if the law just happens to affect. Uh, certain religious groups more than others, then uh, so be it, you know, how are, how are we to know it's a generally applicable law? Uh, and and I, I think that that's a, uh, I would advise my liberal friends to just look at how the Supreme Court has ruled over the last uh, decade. We saw Hosanna Tabor, which was a 9-0 decision in defense of the r- religious freedom in hiring decisions for uh, a Lutheran uh, private school. Uh, We saw just more recently Trinity Lutheran, which was about uh, faith-based groups not being able to be uh, 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 discriminated against when applying for state funding. Uh, We saw in Hobby Lobby, of course, uh, even the religious freedom of closely held corporations respected. This democratic 
approach of pretending like religious freedom does not exist or that it only exists in circumstances when uh, it doesn't impinge on any other values or any other uh, set of interests. Not only, uh, well, I should say, first off, it's dead wrong. And that's why, you know, I've worked so hard to oppose that line of thinking. But two, it's just not going to not going to work. Elena Kagan, who was appointed by President Obama, has 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 been on the side of uh, uh, of Hosanna Tabor. She was on the side of this decision in Masterpiece as well. She's she's no fool. You read her oral transcripts and she's uh, being pretty um, mocking of uh, the, the the cases that are being brought forth. Uh, against sort of the religious freedom side in these cases. So that would be, that'd be my first thing. But then second to conservatives, I'd say, uh, you know, th- this is, uh, not a, a lasting, uh, victory. Um, it certainly, uh, ought to remind Americans that religious animus is a real thing, even against Christians. And there's a seven two Supreme Court decision that, that points it out. And so for those who, uh, sort of dismiss all uh, Christian sentiment about there being animus in society as, you know, uh, a bunker mentality and all this stuff. Certainly, <laughs> there's a lot of that, and we've talked about it on the show. Uh, but to ignore the religious animus that exists and that's real and that holds power in some places in our society, I think it, it makes it much more difficult to make that case after uh, after this ruling as it, as it should be. The, the final thing I'll say, Justin, is that uh, – I would hope religious freedom advocates will view this as an extension of the window provided by the Supreme Court for uh, not just not just religious conservatives, but for all Americans uh, to decide through our legislature, not through our courts, how we are going to live together. (laughs) <laughs> that 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 the the courts won't be able to hold off on more dramatic rulings for too much longer. There's too much unspoken for in the law. There's too much that naturally follows from a court case like Obergefell uh, for the court to hold off indefinitely. But time and time again, John Roberts, the Chief Justice, uh, and 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 the the court have have said, "Look, we need Congress to act here. We're, we're not going to." But place dramatic rulings because this has to be decided by the people and we need politicians and frankly citizens who are courageous enough to look at the state of our society, uh, to look at the state of our laws and decide what we need a 21st century agreement about how in this growing diverse country we're going to live together and Masterpiece uh, gives us the opportunity to do that. Yeah, that's really good. I mean, this was a seven yeah. two decision, um, which is which is really strong. But to your point, you make an excellent point. Our legislative branch has to step up. Uh, earlier, we kind of talked about them hiding behind the president on all this policy and not moving forward unless the president does something. But they're also hiding behind the courts. And that's that's not what they're supposed to do. We need some folks who are bold that want to get things done to do this the right way. And this in a similar case, this has been done in Utah. Uh, I hope there are other comp- uh, compromises that may arise, but the legislative branch needs to handle this because it's it's in their hands and th- and that's where it needs to come from. Another right. point that you made is that people feel like when you talk about yeah. religious liberty and other liberties, it's like 
it only matters on the stuff that's not a big deal. And I think you hit on that well. No, it matters on the stuff that we fundamentally disagree on as human beings on the meaning and purpose of why we're here. Religious liberty is there for the hard thing, because on the easy things, we can agree to disagree and go about our way. This is on the things that whether or not you think it's offensive or whatever, that's what religious liberty is there to protect. And I encourage everybody um, that's listening to this podcast to read a book by a law professor named John Anazu. Uh, John Anazu, he is a, uh, a law professor and he has a book called Confident Pluralism. Confident Pluralism. Go get that immediately because it talks about from a legal point of view, but also a cultural point of view, what it means to have strongly held beliefs to understand that your strongly held beliefs are going to conflict with other people and not get and not try to act like we all believe the same thing inevitably because we don't. Yeah, I, I um, think that's a great recommendation. Also, then, see, the you know, I also respecting someone else's opinion today just and living up, with them, uh, living great, together with uh, those different uh, different opinions. With really read that book if you want an understanding of how uh, all of this is supposed to work people, again from a legal uh, point of view experts, and also a cultural our point. Our very own Justin Gibney on the masterpiece case and what it means moving forward. So uh, I'd run over to CT, check that out uh, as well. Uh, with that, let's take a, a break. Uh, when we get back, we're going to talk about uh, Kate Spade, Anthony Bourdain, uh, and just what is happening in our society right now. We'll be back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. All right. We are back with the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, and. You know, last week was uh, a bit of, uh, well, we saw very sad news. Uh, culturally speaking, it was uh, you know, a, a, really a, a double whammy of cultural heavyweights, people who have, through their work, through what they've created and put out into the world, uh, through their lives, have really um, uh, put their footprint on American culture. Um, in Kate Spade uh, and in Anthony Bourdain, and we lost uh, both uh, to uh, to suicide, uh, and it's it's it sparked one and an outpouring of love and appreciation for uh, their their work and and moments that we've shared. Uh, for um, I don't have too much history with with Kate Spade, but uh, uh, with Although my wife does, or at least admiring, <laughs> admiring what, what what Kate Spade was responsible for, Anthony Bourdain, uh, he was just, uh, uh, you know, well, we, my wife and I, go on trips inspired by his show, or go to restaurants. We'd go to places in America that he went to. He actually visited Buffalo, and remember being so so proud that that Anthony Bourdain would would think it was was worthwhile to go to a place like Buffalo and experience what it was like in that city that, that I love so much. And so, uh, uh, you know, these are people who have made an impact on our lives. Uh, and I think there's an interesting and maybe helpful conversation going on right now about what it means that on the surface, very successful, thriving people, um, uh, uh, Took, took took their own lives and what that means for for those of us that are still living what it means for our society that we're producing such wealth uh such um such material um 
grander. Uh, and yet it's for, for some people and in some slices of our culture, it's leading to an unlikeness. And so, uh, Justin, I'll, I'll, I'll end, I'll end there. I have a, have quite a few thoughts on this, uh, some of which I'm, I'm still working through, but yeah, just how, how have you been thinking about this cultural conversation we're having right now about, uh, over suicide and, and really, you know, the value of, of life? It's tough. And, you know, neither of us know enough about these two instances to get in the middle of what happened to them. We don't know if it was mental illness or what exactly happened. Uh, and that's why I like your measured com comments in that regard. But just generally speaking, um, you know, I've heard that I think I saw somewhere that the number one cause of death from 15 to 30 something year olds is suicide. Um, which is really sad because we've been told for so long on a number of issues that if we affirm this or we do that, that people will stop uh, committing suicide. But I think we begin to see that a lot of times these are internal issues um, where I think, you know, Christians in a lot of ways have something to say about the fact that regardless of what people are going through, you have meaning and you do have purpose because of your Imago day. I don't know that enough people have an understanding of that, of the purpose uh, that God has given us as long as we're on this earth, whether somebody else recognizes it or not, yeah. that we do have purpose and you do mean something. Um, and I wish people, you know, any time that they thought of suicide would not only get medical help because that's important and we don't want to blow that off, but that they would feel invited uh, to their local church, right? That they fit, that they would feel that's a place that they could go to find meaning, to feel welcome, to find hospitality. And all churches should feel like they should be that inviting. Now, people, when they go through the worst of things, should be able to feel like they can step into a church and be accepted and heard out and cared for. Uh, that's what we should be aiming for. Uh, but to your point, you know, when it comes to fame, when it comes to money, you see that that stuff just cannot maintain you and that there's often an internal bondage that we all have uh, that often goes unaddressed as we we just kind of seek out these. Uh, external, um, obstructive measures and, 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 and things that hold us back. But there's an internal element to all of this too. And so I just want to mourn with those who are mourning, uh, pray for the families of both those who, uh, have taken their lives. And as we, you know, get new facts, or whatever, uh, just that we work as a country to figure this out. Are we valuing life as we should? And if we're not, why is that? I love my family. I'm best friends with my dad. And then this 2016 election cycle came up and it really drove a wedge in between some of us. Donald Trump's the first person that got us. He's the first person to actually at least pretend to give a damn about us. Check out Depolarize, the podcast that fights against tribalism and incivility by searching for common ground at the intersection of politics, psychology, and faith. This season, we look closely at the phenomenon of white evangelical support for Donald Trump and the many difficult, related questions that are begging to be answered. Two grown men picked him up, a 15-year-old kid, and threw him as hard as they could off the hood of the car. Uh, and it's shocking. It's shocking. His whole, all his teeth came out. Uh, he's bleeding all over the place. And they look, they look to us, right? They say, you fucking this is what happens to you. God isn't far away. God is with us now, here, now. Every moment matters. I don't know why I'm crying. It just, it just hurts. Find Depolarize on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back uh, with the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, uh, Justin, uh, 
I think we we knew this was was coming ahead of 2020, but uh, this past week the DNC has uh, made a rule that for those uh, running for the Democratic nomination, uh, they must uh, have uh, they must serve in office uh, as uh, as a Democrat. Uh, this is obviously you know we might as well call it the Bernie Sanders rule. Uh, and so, you know, obviously response to it is uh, is split along those lines generally. Uh, but but what it, what is your take on on this rule uh, and, and what it means for how the 2020 race will shape up? I get it. I mean, this it is a party and you want people to be you know, giving to the party, adding to what's going on, serving the party to be able to run as part of the party. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that Bernie Sanders uh, couldn't run. Right. He could just announce himself as a Democrat uh, and then he could go from there. But it would force him to do that at some point uh, rather than staying at independent, kind of playing the fence, as some would call it, not really adding to the party. But then at the end of the day, using party infrastructure to to run. Uh, for office or run for president. So I get it. You know, I'm not I'm not so so big on the two party system as it is right now. Uh, so I, I can't say that I'm just fully in support of it. But if but based on what we have, I get why the Democratic Party did that. Um, and it certainly was aimed at someone like Bernie Sanders to, to kind of make him make hmm. a decision. It, it just shows that things are about to heat up. There are rules out there and there's a lot of competition that's going to come up. Of our friend John Ward, we're seeing that parties have have been weakened and hollowed out and don't quite have the decision-making power that they, they have in other eras. <laughs> uh, but to the extent that they uh, are able to put their thumb on the scale, it's hard to imagine that in these circumstances, they're going to be less willing to do so uh, than before, even with all the controversy. And so I agree, that's going to be something to watch uh, how, um, how party strategists and leaders try and, uh, uh, try and make sure that the nominee that emerges out of the field is is one that you know will you know quote unquote will beat Trump. Um, so so I think that's important. Yeah, I, I agree with you on the rule. I, I think if you want to use party infrastructure, if you want to pull, if you if you want to be speaking at the Democratic uh, convention as its nominee, then you ought to be willing to identify as a as a Democrat. And that doesn't mean that you need to. Uh, toe the line. I was interested uh, to see uh, Ro Khanna out of California put out a, a statement directly repudiating the foreign policy of Chuck Schumer, the Senate uh, minority leader, as not representative of the Democratic Party. And so uh, both uh, Schumer and and Roe uh, identify as Democrats and, you know, they're uh, able to to disagree, disagree about what it means to be a Democrat. And I think we need more arguments from people within the party who are willing to identify as Democrats and therefore, you know, work within the institution. The people who are, you know, frankly, uh, you know, posturing from the outside and trying to have a stake, uh, trying to have a say in Democratic uh, debates or Republican debates without having a, an actual stake in them. And so, uh, so I think the DNC rule uh makes makes sense um as far as the party's interests go and uh and the party's certainly within its rights to to act in in its interest uh J J justin i was um it, it's 
we have an interesting week coming up today. Uh, we're recording this on Monday. Today is the first day of uh, the the summit that we've been talking about. The the on again, off again. It, you know, it's kind of like a summer fling. Uh, if, if, if we're if we're gonna if we're gonna talk in in those terms, you know, the Trump. Uh, uh, Kim fling, summer fling, uh, uh, we'll, uh, you know, but, you know, despite the lighthearted, you know, joke, it's, it's going to be a, uh, a serious moment, though. We talked last week that, uh, you know, it doesn't seem like it'll be quite as serious as how it was being played up in May, but it, it's going to be historic to have those, those, uh, leaders meeting together. And so, uh, I'm sure that we'll, uh, stay, tuned to that uh, anything that you're thinking about in in the week ahead just dallas again <laughs> if you're going to be in dallas come to the frontline discipleship <laughs> tour that's going to be important also i want to thank everybody who responded to our question about family reunions we had several people respond some saying yes people outside of uh, black culture do that others saying not so much and so we appreciate that all right justin well uh again we'll it'll be an exciting week both both personally with, with Dallas. And then, uh, you know, I think we're going to have another busy news week. Things aren't going to slow down just because it's June. And so we'll be back next week to cover all of that and more. This is the Church Politics Podcast. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a blessed week. I'm an advocate for those feeling abandonment in the favelas and slums of ghetto inhabitants. It's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The only thing good came out of Nazareth. This is the groove. Tell me, yeah. can I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave, I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a fade.